May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There is perhaps no clearer line of demarcation between Protestants and Catholics than the way um, the mother of our Lord is viewed. How Christians understand and view the role of Mary serves often as a central point of sort of conflict and impasse between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Reformed Christians often charge Roman Christians with idolatry, saying they worship Mary, while the others, uh, the, the latter, charge the former with, uh, with neglect, not recognizing the work of God, uh, saying things like, if you cannot honor Mary, you cannot honor Jesus. And so back and forth it goes. The history of the church is even a little bit more confusing. It doesn't always offer us the sort of help that we would like. Uh, For instance, uh, many Protestant Christians will point out that some of the most extreme doctrines around Mary, for instance, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which teaches that Mary was conceived without original sin, really wasn't dated until 1854 before that became part of church dogma, 1854. 1,854 years after the... So very late. Likewise, the, the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary, which is the doctrine that, that uh, the, church, the Catholic Church teaches that, that Mary didn't actually die, but she was just simply taken up into heaven by God, um, did not come about in the, the Roman Church until 1950. And so some of these very weighty, important doctrines, um, very, very late in the history of the Church. And so Protestant Christians have said things to Roman Christians like... You see, um, this is all new stuff. This isn't part of the ancient church. This isn't what the ancient Christians did. But as soon as that claim comes out, there's a very good Roman retort, which is, wait a minute. I mean, go back to the earliest Christians if you think this is new. Go back to St. Athanasius, for instance, whom Protestants love. We love St. Athanasius, whether you're uh, Reformed or Catholic, because St. Athanasius did something really great in that he... He provided us the the basis, or defended the basis, rather, of the doctrine of um, the deity of Jesus and the Trinity. So St. Athanasius is is regarded by both Protestants and Catholics alike. Let me read to you what St. Athanasius said, just one part about what he said about the Virgin Mary. O noble virgin, truly you are greater than any other greatness. For who is equal in your greatness, O dwelling place of God the Word. To whom among all the creatures shall I compare you, O virgin? You are greater than them all, O ark of the new covenant, clothed with purity instead of gold. You are the ark in which is found the golden vessel containing the true manna, that is, the flesh in which divinity resides. Shall I compare you to the fertile earth or its fruits? You would surpass them. If I say that heaven is exalted, yet it does not equal you. If we say that the cherubim are great, you are greater than they. For the cherubim, that is the angels, carry the throne of God while you hold God in your hands. That's pretty high praise. And I could give you more. That's why Anglicans are, like we always are, caught in the middle. <laughs> we are both Reformed and Catholic at the same time. So someone asks an Anglican, you know, are you Catholic or Protestant? The answer is yes. <laughs> We know that there is just no way to always, um, some of our people tend to be more Catholic or more Protestant, but the, the truth of the matter is Anglicanism has always been a piety of tolerance on this issue and many other issues. We, we, especially with the issue of the mother of our Lord, kind of hold to the middle. 
And so you'll find many Anglican churches called St. Mary's Church. If you have an Anglican church that's large enough to have two altars in it, the second altar will be a chapel dedicated to the Blessed Virgin in, in our churches around the world. And then you have some parishes where, you know, it's much more of a, a Protestant sensibility. But among Anglicans as a whole, among the way that we approach this, it's always in the middle, deciding that sometimes when you're at an impasse, the best option is to do nothing. You know, this is the way we have worked. But it doesn't really matter this morning what your sense of devotion is. And, and I think that this is a, a good discussion to have and one that, that, um, that Christians would, be, would do well to have a discussion about. But whatever it is, I want to focus this morning on Mary in a different way. As a real person. As a real human being. When we meet her in Luke's gospel, um, she has just heard from an angel that she is going to bear a child. And she is stunned by this because although she is engaged, she is yet unmarried, and she's never been intimate with a man. And so she doesn't understand. The angel assures her this is of God and that the child in her is a holy child. Luke says Mary willingly accepts this vocation, and she embraces it. We also discover early in Luke's gospel that Mary is poor. I mean, she's very poor. She's a peasant. There are a lot of places where you could, where you can uh, infer this, but one of the places that's most clear is when, when Jesus is born, they, they go to the temple to offer sacrifice for him. And at that, that sacrifice, they offer two small birds, which was only permitted if you were too poor to purchase a lamb. So we know that here she is, this, this unmarried, poor woman, And we also believe her to be very young because the fact that she is betrothed and not married. This might disturb you. In the ancient Near Eastern culture in which Mary lived, um, girls were often betrothed at 11 or 12 years of age. And then they would be married around 13 or 14. So they would be betrothed 11 or 12, live with their parents for a year or two, and then they would be married. And, um, And so the fact that Mary has been betrothed but is not yet married puts her somewhere between 12 and at the outset, 15 years of age. She is young. She is poor. Um, she has uh, had this experience, so she must be pious, you know, that she is a, a devout believer. I should add one little other caveat to this, that she comes probably from a pious family, and that if you were a, a religious, and then most people were in this, in this era, a religious young girl found to be pregnant before you were married, It's not just a scandal. It's not just that people would whisper and there would be talk about you. She could be executed. This could could actually lead to her execution. I read not long ago in Iran that a woman was buried up to her neck and stoned to death for, for this very crime. Still happening in the present Middle East. Imagine what it was like in the ancient Near East. This is the biblical picture of a real human being, Mary, young, poor, vulnerable, and unmistakably pregnant. It's during this pregnancy that she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who also has some of a miracle pregnancy going on. It's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, though. Elizabeth is is aged. She's well past childbearing age and has been barren, has not given birth to any children, and now here she is pregnant. And when Mary arrives, Elizabeth says that the child inside of her leaps 
And not just like, oh, wow, that was a kick, but there must have been something more to that, that it was, it was a, a sense of, of aha, that the, the infant child inside of Elizabeth is pro- prophesying about the child inside of Mary. But even more than that, the words that come from Elizabeth are striking. She calls Mary blessed and calls her the mother of the Lord, the mother of my Lord. So this high praise, and all of this sort of leads up to this song of Mary that was the canticle this morning. My soul magnifies the Lord. I like that translation better. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones. He has lifted up the lowly and filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his son Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. It's a great poem, a great song. And I always think it's sad when people dissect poetry. <laughs> I do. I used to, uh, pardon the, the analogy, but I used to tell my, uh, my university students, you know, anybody who dissects a, a, a poem is like the guy who brings a puppy dog into a room and says, I can tell you a lot about this puppy dog, but the best way to do it is to turn him over and cut him open and let you see inside. You know, um, at some level, you do have a better understanding of the internal workings of the dog. But you sacrifice the animal at the expense of knowledge, you know. And so sometimes I feel like doing to poetry, dissecting it, does the same thing. Because the point of poetry is to... Ex- I really have some of you disturbed. You're not going to take that image with you the rest of the day. Is that, that poetry expands language, doesn't it? It makes, it, it makes us able to say things qualitatively better than we otherwise could have. It helps us to express inwardly what, what prose can never do. And so to dissect poetry is... Um, is really not very nice thing to do, but I have to. <laughs> if for no other reason, I got seven more minutes, and we have to do something with this. So, what are we going to do with this poem? What are we going to look at it? I'm joking, of course. Well, I, I, I think you can see a lot about the person who sang it. This young girl, Mary, as she sings this poem, that she is a person of virtue, of goodness. He has looked upon his humble servant, she says. Do you ever think about what Mary could have said? <laughs> Do you ever think about what maybe you might have said? I kind of thought about some of the things I might have said. It might have been like something like this. This isn't fair, you know. I think that this isn't fair line comes out for me pretty early, you know. I, 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 uh, I appeal to justice on a regular basis. This isn't fair. You're destroying my life. I've heard that one a time or two, right? Why me? You know how you know how difficult this is going to be. Or maybe at the other end of the spectrum, why? Of course you chose me. I mean, how could you not have chosen me? And this isn't what you find in Mary, not at all. She delights even in her unworthiness. His humble servant. I mean, most of us kind of would like to have servants, you know. Isn't it nice? You know, you like when you go to dinner and it's like somebody brings it to you and they take away your dishes and they clean them. I mean, isn't that this wonderful thing? Mary delights in being the servant of the Lord. She delights in humility. 
she knows that arrogance is abhorrent to God. Not just her, not just does she say it about herself, you know, your humble servant, meaning me, but notice what she says that, that he has, he tears down the arrogant. He, he, he's unpleased with the arrogant God is, but loves the humble. She knows what goodness is, and she knows that her story is part of a bigger story. It's not really about her. Mary isn't focused on the centrality of her story. It's very easy to sort of get caught up in our own story, isn't it? I mean, like, you know, like everything is around, you know, sometimes I like flip through the Bible and like, Lord, say something to me, you know. And, and, and then I hear him say, but yeah, it's not about you, you know. Let me say something about somebody else, about a bigger story, about the way that God is saving the world. And this is what Mary does. You have come to the help of your servant Israel. You remember the promise that you made to Abraham. That her salvation, the child that she carries, her own Savior, is about the Savior of the world, not just the locus of, of Mary as an individual. Salvation is a bigger thing. God is doing a bigger thing, even than this child that she carries. But I think more than anything that strikes me about this, this poem, this song, is it demonstrates that Mary is a true person of faith. I didn't pick up on this for a long time. I mean, I've read this... I don't know how a gazillion times. You know, this is morning and evening prayer. This is every day, all the time. And then this week, I go through and, and just like, you know, I'm breaking into translation. I'm just going to start fresh, go right back. Let's start with, you know, with Luke's original. Go with the Greek and see. And, and as I'm going through it, I notice something. Something happened I'd never noticed before. Listen to the voice, the tense of the verbs. She begins, right? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's happening right now, right? She says it. It's a present tense reality. It would be, um, you know, if, if I started singing this song right now and was singing it about myself, two things would happen. Number one, you would realize it's happening right now. And number two, you would say, please stop. You know, just don't. No more. We'll bring somebody else up here. Jill, you come sing this. way. No, it's happening right this moment. Mary is saying, I am right now magnifying the Lord. My spirit, inwardly, I'm having this interior reaction at the present moment. Right? It's, it's happening. But then listen, listen with that same sensibility of time as she goes on. She talks about what God has done. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in, their, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. It's like it already happened, isn't it? It's like it's something that's happened, and you're feeling the effects of it in the present. Only thing is, it hasn't happened. When Mary sings this song, the thing that she's singing about has not yet occurred. In fact, 2,000 years later, it still has not completely occurred, has it? The mighty are still in control. There are still people upon thrones who are wielding power. The humble and the poor still go around hungry and haven't been necessarily altogether fed with good things. But Mary believes it as if it has already occurred, as if it has already taken place. She believes it. And she sings about it. And she delights in it. As I said, this has been the, a canticle for morning and evening prayer. 
Well, for about as long as Christians have been on the face of the earth. As soon as Luke penned it, I think they, they put it out in the first prayer books. You know, we're going to sing this as our regular way of praying every day. And you know why? Because it changes us when we get this in our hearts. When we begin to, to you know, eat and breathe and drink and sleep this sort of piety, imagine what it does, how it changes the way we value humility. It changes the way we see goodness. It changes the way we we view ourselves and what's valuable in this world. It makes us delight in the work of God, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of people, men and women, boys and girls around the world. And it changes the way we see the world with eyes of faith. That we can believe that it is a fiat accompli, that God has already done these things. He has already pulled down the mighty from their thrones. He has already filled the hungry with good things. He is going to make all things right. There's going to be true justice in the world. How countercultural is this? How different is this than, you know, the department store songs that are being played? How different is this than even the nightclub songs that are being played? This is completely different than what our world is singing. It's a different song and it makes us different kinds of people. I had a friend who earlier in the year, you know, put out this thing about um, the pink candle on the Advent wreath. You know, when does a pink candle get lit? Is it third week or fourth week? And so, you know, this is a kind of a confusion, I guess, that people get through. And it's the third week. And the question was, does it really matter? Well, I guess, no, it doesn't really matter. You know, no, it doesn't. But isn't it delightful that right in the midst of the Advent season, we have this moment of joy. Not the last week of Advent, when we're rushing ahead to Christmas anyway, but here on the third week of Advent, this moment of joy and delight. It has happened. Already. Even though it's not yet. I don't understand that. But I do believe it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.